Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schaus. Episode number four, Andrei Bogolyubsky and the Arrival of the Mongols. Last episode, we recounted the destruction of the once great city of Kiev by the armies of the son of Yuri Dolgeruki, Andrei Bogolyubsky. Andrei moved the capital from Kiev to the city of Vladimir, and soon thereafter, Kiev was sacked once more by the Kumans, or what remained of the city. Andrei, whose name means Andrei the God-loving, set up his personal residence in a city called Bogolubovo, which is why the name Bogolyubsky is commonly accepted and would be heard of often in Russian history, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad. Before we left Kiev, Andrei removed the cherished Byzantine Mother of God icon from the Kievian church it resided in and moved it to his own church, the Church of Intercession in Bogolubovo. Many of the religious artifacts of the city were also pillaged and moved elsewhere. All of this was considered a spear to the heart of Kiev. You cannot underestimate the importance of the icon to the Orthodox faithful. To this day, it is the focus of church services and their prayers. Iconostasis, the veneration of icons, exploded in the 14th and 15th century, which set Russian apart, especially with their art, from Western Renaissance Europe. Each icon was to remind the churchgoer about the involvement of God in all human affairs. This was to crystallize in their political theory, which said that the Tsar is, as it were, the living icon of God, just as the whole Orthodox Empire is the icon of the heavenly world. Now, this wouldn't happen for many hundreds of years, but its seeds were planted here. Andre then went so far as to try to move the Metropolitanate from Kiev to Vladimir. But the Patriarch of Constantinople, the ultimate spiritual leader of the Eastern Orthodox religion, said no. Still, gone was the pride of Kiev. It would be many years before Kiev would rise again, but never to the glories reached under Yaroslav the Wise and Vladimir Monomak. Now getting back to Andre. His ruling style was different than those who came before him. Replacing the democratic vetch system within his realm, Andre instituted a system that was to last until Boris Yeltsin, some 800 years later. He introduced absolutism. This, of course, was not the case with the more independent Novgorod, which retained its vetch system for hundreds of years to come, but it would become the model for all subsequent Russian rulers. Andre was obviously a grand patron of the Russian Orthodox religion, building many churches and a large cathedral. He focused a great deal on his dealings with the church, but in the meantime he also ignored the minor nobles, known as boyars. This was to be his downfall. A conspiracy began to be hatched by about 20 of the boyars to rid themselves of Andre. In 1174, Grand Prince Andre of Vladimir was murdered by the boyars and his own bodyguards. Such was the contempt that the people surrounding him had. Of course, as was the tradition of the Russians, another civil war broke out. Three cities were to play a major role in the war, Vladimir, Rostov, and Zuzdal. Over the next two years, there was almost constant fighting, but eventually Vesvolod III 
known as the Big Nest, the younger brother of Andrei Bogolyubsky, prevailed. Vesvilad was named the Big Nest because of all the children he fathered. He also continued on with the autocratic ways of his older brother Andrei. He reigned until his death in 1212, having ruled his lands for 36 years. What is truly surprising is the lack of information about Vesvilad we have, despite his long reign. His sons, Constantine and Yuri, fought for supremacy until 1218, when Yuri prevailed after the murder of his brother. He lasted fanatically fighting the Volga Bulgars until March 4, 1231, when he was killed by the invading Mongols. Well, wait, let's turn back the clock a bit. The beginning of the 13th century was to be a bad one for the Eastern Orthodox Church and the countries who followed it. The Catholic Crusaders invaded the declining but still gem of the city, Constantinople. The destruction of art, desecration of churches, rapes of nuns, and murders of priests showed the contempt the Western Church had for the East. After leaving the city, Constantinople was to defend itself against the ever-expanding Turkic Empire. Constantine IX Paleologos was the last emperor in a line that stretched from 27 B.C., when Augustus took the title of Caesar in Rome. The last of the Roman Empire ended, as did the Greek influence on the Russian church. The end came in 1453, which is still a ways off, but the beginning of the end began here. Thousands of miles away, a young man, who would one day take the title Emperor of Mankind, took control of a warrior people, who would strike fear throughout Asia and Europe. His name was Temuchin, better known to history as Genghis Khan. After conquering Peking in 1215, the Mongols moved west and south, devastating everything in their path. The brilliance of Temuchin was not his brutality, which he was pretty good at, but what he did to his subjugated people. Those who did not resist his irresistible army were added to it, being trained in the Mongol way. If you resisted, which the great Khan viewed as a betrayal, well, you'd have better said your last prayers. He had no patience for traitors. You were as good as dead. While many died, many capitulated and were added to the army, swelling it into an estimated 300,000. Moving west, the nomadic Mongols clashed and slaughtered a Christian Georgian army of 70,000 on the Kumen Plain. Then the Mongols defeated an army of Kumans, Volga Bulgars, and Alans. The two sons of Genghis Khan then split the army. One, Subade, headed southwest to the Sea of Azov, where he eventually signed a treaty with the merchants of Venice. Jebi rode west, heading toward Russian territory. Here is where the arrogance and lack of cohesiveness of Russian leaders conspired against them. Chebe and Subide, hearing of a gathering of Russian armies, rejoined each other and sent a mission of envoys to the camp of Mstislav the Bold to ask for peace. Mstislav overestimating his military strength and definitely underestimating the ferocity of the Mongol army, murdered the envoys and proceeded to attack the Mongol rearguard. Now for the arrogance. Thinking they were in for an easy time, 
They pursued the Mongols, stretching their lines thinner and thinner. In a military blunder of epic proportions, no prince was given overall command of the armies, and no one thought to develop a line of communications between the combined forces of numerous Russian armies and their now allies, the Cumans. As a result, more than 40,000 troops were slaughtered, along with six princes in the battle that ensued. Another 10,000 from the Kievian army, serving as a rear guard protecting the retreating armies, were also killed. Then, as quickly as they appeared, the Mongols headed back east. The year was 1223. Foolishly, and possibly deluded, the remaining princes thought that the Mongols feared the Russians, and that this was the reason they left. Wholesale defeat always leads to overconfidence, doesn't it? Yeah, I didn't think so. Well, who were these Mongols? Couple things first. Some historians call them the Tatars, but at this time that would be incorrect. The Tatars were more of a Turkish descent, and were products of the Mongol invasion, and were to dominate Russia after the initial Mongol intrusion. These Mongols, as a Chinese writer put it, they are preoccupied exclusively with their flocks. They roam and they possess neither towns nor walls, neither writing nor books. They conclude all agreements orally. From childhood they pr practice riding and shooting arrows, and thus they acquire courage necessary for pillage and war. As long as they move back and forth, when there's no hope, a timely flight is not considered reprehensible. Religious rites and legal institutions, they know not. They all feed on the meat of the animals which they kill, and they dress in their hides and furs. The strongest among them grab to the fattest pieces. The old men, on the other hand, eat and drink what is left. They respect only the bravest. Old age and feebleness are held in contempt. In 1229, Genghis Khan died, leaving his son Ogadai as the supreme Khan. In 1236, with armies led by Batu and Subadai, the Mongols decided to head west again. Their first aim was to destroy the Volga Bulgars, who had blindsided the retreating Mongols years earlier. The leader of the Bulgars sent messages to Yuri II, asking for help. Remember earlier when I mentioned Yuri's hatred for the Bulgars? Well, he ignored them, despite the fact that some of his advisors recommended going to the aid of his arch-rivals. Because of this decision, the Bulgars were summarily annihilated. History hears little of these people ever again. Setting his sights on the city-state of Vladimir, Batu headed to Ryazan, surrounded Prince Yuri and Gvarevich, who was also abandoned by Yuri II, proclaimed to the invaders, When there is none of us left, then all will be yours. After five days of fighting, Ryazan fell, and every living creature, including pets and farm animals, were killed. From the tale of the ravage of Ryazan by Batu, we have this description of the events. The churches of God they devastated, and the holy altars they shed much blood. And no one in town remained alive. All died equally and drank the single cup of death. There was nowhere, no one here to moan or cry. Neither father and mother over children, 
nor children over father and mother, neither brother over brother, nor relatives over relatives, but all lay dead together. And all this occurred to us for our sins. Quickly, one by one, many of the cities of the land of the Rus fell to the might of the Mongol invaders. Any city that capitulated was dealt with leniently. Failure to quickly surrender and death was quick to come. Right after January 1st, 1238, the Mongols had the city of Vladimir surrounded. Yuri, whom many called a coward, fled the city and left the defenses to his sons. They fought bravely, but in the end, resistance proved futile. All were slaughtered. With a small army by his side, chased by the Mongols, Yuri's army was crushed on March 4, 1238. Yuri once more escaped, but this time his luck was to run out as the pursuing Mongols hunted him down and killed him within a week. Batu then headed for Novgorod, but one of the greatest allies and defenders of Russia, one that was to play a major role throughout its history, protected the northern town. The protector? The weather. This time it wasn't the bitter cold and snow, but a spring thaw, which turned the marshes into muddy messes, halted the Mongol advance as their horses and baggage train could not move. This was to prove disastrous for the Cumans. Frustrated, Batu and his army abandoned the attack on Novgorod and headed south. They destroyed the Cuman army, forcing them to flee towards Hungary and Byzantium, or become members of the Mongol army. This was to be the end of the Cuman people. Then came the event that was to mold Russian policy and behavior for the next 200 years. Yaroslav II, son of Yuri II, went to Batu and subjugated himself and asked if he could become the Grand Prince as a vassal of the Mongols. Batu agreed, and the Prince of Novgorod also became the Prince of Vladimir. In 1246, Batu sent Yaroslav to the Mongol capital of Karakorum to pay respects to the great Khan. There he was poisoned by the new Khan's mother, who distrusted Batu. Upon hearing of Yaroslav's death, Batu appointed Andrei, Yaroslav's eldest son, to become Grand Prince. The Mongols during this time period were not done conquering and destroying everything in their path. Chernigov was destroyed, and then in 1240, poor hapless Kiev, or what was left of it, was almost wiped off the face of the earth. Once equal in population to that of Paris, around 80,000, with some estimates claiming 100,000 inhabitants, by 1240, less than 200 homes remained. The destruction of this great city started with interfamily disputes amongst the Russian princes, then the looting and sacking of Baikuman nomads, and finally Kiev was finished off by the Mongols. Kiev was to rebound, but that would take many years. Also, this was not the last destruction of the city, as the Nazis almost leveled it in 1941. Today, Kiev is the capital of the Ukraine, harboring over two million inhabitants, proud of their city's place in Russian and world history. It is here we pause, in 1246, with Russia subdued for the most part. A dark period 
which will be brightened by a man who will be next episode's focus, Alexander Nevsky. As this podcast matures, I'll be adding things here and there. Today I add a section on resources on Russian history. The first is a seminal work by eminent Russian historian Nicholas Ryazanovsky and Professor Steinberg. It is aptly named A History of Russia. First published in 1962, it is in its seventh edition, and it's a, just an amazing piece of work. And if you're more than a passing historian, this book is for you. It is likely to be the most in-depth book on all aspects of Russian people and history. Professor Ryazanovsky and Steinberg have an easy-to-read writing style, which makes reading his work, or their work, a joy. The next two books are a bit more approachable. The first is Russia, the Once and Future Empire from Prehistory to Putin by Philip Longworth, and the other is Tsars, Russia's Rulers for Over 1,000 Years by James Duffy and Vincent Ricci. Well, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please visit the podcast website, RussianRulersHistory.com, or become a Facebook friend at Russian Rulers History where you can leave a comment, make a suggestion, or ask a question. So, as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.